Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us again. Um, The Holocaust series ended last week. We had a lot of feedback from people saying that their three weeks and their nine days was a lot more meaningful due to your the descriptions you gave of the Holocaust and the Churban of Europe, which obviously in the bigger picture of the Churban of Golis, which we are in still, it was a lot more meaningful for them. So thank you for that. This week, we are starting a new four-part series about incidents in Prague. Yep. And if I may ask, I know Poland is your forte. Why Prague? Well, many reasons, I guess. Prague is central to Jewish history. It was at one stage the city with the largest Jewish community in the world. Also, we know a lot about it, a lot about the history that took place there, social and religious. And in fact, to this day, there is more to view there than most other comparable places or capital cities in Europe. And it is one of my favorite cities to run trips in. Oh, so it's, it's not just about seeing the golem. Oh, if the golem indeed existed. <laughs> That's for another episode, I gather. That's for people to come to Prague and discover it in situ. Yeah, well, I highly recommend a trip to Prague with Rabbi Hirsch, if you can. So all of the four of these series are about the 18th century? Yes. So the century most talked about with regards to Prague is the 16th the Maral and his influence and his invitation, highly unusually, in 1591 by the king to a private audience, the legends of that century, the golem, as you've just mentioned, and this all took place in a town that was noted for its alchemy and astrology. This is in the hands of the non-Jews. And then there were shawls that were built, the politics, But actually, the 18th century is no less interesting and possibly across more areas. Beyond the fact that Prague was host to at least six or seven world-renowned rabbis um, spanning the entire length of that century, and we'll be looking at four of them through this series, but it was also the century that Jews had to contend with censorship, emancipation, expulsions, wars, they had to deal with expansion, scientific advances, and located halfway between east and west, not just geographically, meant that uh, both sides of Europe had an input. And then there is Kabbalah, which is highly contentious in Prague, those who concealed what they knew and those who revealed it. And the they is not as simple as we are normally led to believe. And this covers both study and practice of Kabbalah. And there is the fact that they come into this century on the back of two particularly difficult events. The plague of 1680, when the ghetto gates were sealed by the non-Jewish authorities. 
and Jews therefore could not avail themselves of outside medical help. And then there is the fire of 1689, which not only reduced them to poverty, but made many of them homeless. So it sounds like Prague had a very rich history of culture, of yes. Jewish people. Is there, is there anything remaining now? A lot. If you go there, there is much to see and much to explore. Yeah. And in terms of current Jews living there, anything left? Yes, absolutely. There is still a Jewish primary school. It's one of the cities in Europe where you're more or less guaranteed at least one million a day for shachris, sometimes two in tourist season, and there are kosher restaurants. There is an infrastructure there. There's a functioning mikvah. Is that possibly a result of all the shuls that we still have there standing? It is really because Jews used Prague as a transit point after the Holocaust. And although obviously communism existed there and Jewish education was almost non-existent after the Second World War, but it was a lighter touch than in other places. They were closer to the West, not just geographically. And it meant that they also picked up more easily post the fall of the Iron Curtain. Mm. Okay, so we start with episode one out of four, which is the books, which took place in 1704. Yes, and we start, in fact, with a rabbi whose whole life is identified with books, not just learning them, which I guess is to be expected, but on many varied and unusual levels. Firstly, there is his personal library, which, unlike many others, survived World War II and is valued today in the millions. And there are his own writings and responsa. Secondly, there are letters that he wrote for which he was accused of treason and charged in the imperial court. And then there are issues which plagued Jewish Europe at the time of Sabbatean writings, the followers of Shabtai Tzvi, the false messiah who had died in 1676, and the influence that it had on him and on some of those who turned to him for advice. The name of the rabbi is Rabbi David Oppenheim. He was born in Worms in Germany in 1664, but he will spend almost half his life as the rabbi of Prague. Isn't that where Rashi came from? Worms. Rashi learnt in Worms. Mm. He was born in Troyes, in the Champagne region to the east of Paris, and died there. But he learnt in Worms for a number of years just before and perhaps just after his marriage. Mm. So in 1689, Rabbi David Oppenheim becomes the chief rabbi of Nicholsburg and in fact of all of Moravia as well, which is a very prestigious rabbinic position. It was previously held by prominent individuals such as the Maharal, whose house still stands there, and Rabbiontov Lippmann Heller, the Tesis Yontov, and it would subsequently be occupied in later years by Rabshamshum Fall Hirsch. And in 1702, so 13 years later, he is elected as the Rav of Prague. 
In fact, interestingly, his Xav Rabonus, the letter of appointment, was discovered many years later, uh, fortuitously, in a volume of Gomorrah tucked away in his large library, and it is dated the 26th of E.R. in what was 1702. And he remains in Prague for the next 34 years, and in addition to his local duties, in 1718 he also became the chief rabbi of Bohemia. Now, Rav Oppenheim was a man of means, which was uh, facilitated by the wealth of his uncle, Samuel Oppenheim, who was a court banker and a military supplier to the emperor in Vienna. And in fact, uh, Samuel Oppenheim was allowed to remain in Vienna after all the Jews had been expelled in 1670. So Rav Oppenheim is therefore very involved in communal charities in Europe, but he is also able to accumulate a sizable Hebrew library. In fact, you could almost call him an insatiable bibliophile. His collection numbers approximately four and a half to five thousand printed books and a thousand manuscripts, and obviously we're talking the early 1700s. And these include halacha, uh, works of science, philosophy, numerous editions of Tanakh, Talmud, and he also commissioned Svarim to be printed. There is therefore an 18th century Frankfurt edition of the Talmud, printed on parchment, uh, which obviously we have access to as a result of his library. More curiously, his collection contains hundreds of Yiddish works, which was the daily reading language of Europe's Jews, written for women and men, everything from songs to guidebooks of halacha, as well as stories, some secular, some religious. And in many cases, his collection is now the sole surviving copy of certain works. And the collection shows not just his rabbinic background or credentials, but the access he must have had to the network of court Jews in Europe, who in turn had access to the emperors of their day, especially the Habsburgs. And this collection was used by other abonim. We see, for instance, in the writings of the Shvus Yaakov, he quotes a responsum from the Rashba, which actually appears in volume six, despite the fact that volume six had not yet been printed in the early 1700s. But the Shvusyakov clarifies that he found this Rashba, Bichsavyad in manuscript format, in the famous library of my brother-in-law, Rabdovid Oppenheim. It sounds like an immense library. Where did he keep it in Prague? So, actually, he didn't. He couldn't. Because when he moved from Nicholsburg to Prague in 1702, he was not able to bring the library with him because the church censor, which was particularly intrusive in Bohemia, raised strong concerns about the library's contents. 
And now some of the concerns were almost insane. For instance, one of them was that most of these books came from Turkey or the Ottoman Empire, which was somewhat true because they'd been sent from Eretz Israel. And Turkey was the arch enemy of the Emperor of Austria, and therefore you could not keep such a collection. Other grounds were that many of the books probably contained heresy against the Christian religion, and therefore only with adequate scrutiny would he be allowed to bring them into the city. But given that church censorship was so strict there, Ravoppenheim knew that some of his books and manuscripts would be confiscated and never seen again. Some of them would be mutilated, have pages torn out. Some of them would be burnt, as happened in 1714 to other Svarim. So he therefore had them moved to the house of his father-in-law in Hanover, and he would actually never get to use this collection during his lifetime. So where did it go? Where did it end up? Well, it's a long story, almost 100 years long, which we'll get to soon. But to cut to the chase, it ends up in Oxford. But let us first deal with the most bizarre incident in his life and his greatest struggle, which would have an outcome not only on his own writings, but on the books of the Jews of Bohemia for the next half century. The story starts in Eretz Israel where over a period of years, or perhaps decades, Rav Oppenheim had created close connections with the Jewish community of Yerushalayim. He had supported them, he'd advised them, and with the death of their rabbi in 1699, he was offered to become the rabbi of Jerusalem, which he turned down. But the city nevertheless sent him a formal document of endorsement to the post, which was followed by a second letter in the summer of 1707, awarding him the honorary title of Nasi, Prince of Eretz Israel. Can you just paint for us a very rough sketch of what Yerushalayim looked like in 1707? How many Jews were there? So it was a backwater in comparison, never mind to what it is today, but even to what it became in the late 19th century. And the Ashkenazim struggled greatly financially. In fact, there's an entire story behind that, a podcast in its own right, which resulted in Ashkenazim taking on the dress of Svardim in order to be disguised. But it was, nevertheless, you know, the Jerusalem of old in the sense that the wall of the coastal still stood there and it was a place of sanctity. But in terms of numbers, uh, it was a very very small community and had just started growing really in the 1600s. So he's awarded this honorary title of Prince of Eretz Israel. And... Rabbis were asked, still are asked from time to time, to write approbations, a haskama, to a sefer. Rabbi Oppenheim is no exception. And in writing these, which are sometimes uh, quite uh, flowery or poetic, he would make occasional use of the titles Rabbi of Prague and Nasi of Jerusalem 
although it's clear to anyone with an understanding of Drury in the 1700s that it's got no real authority or meaning. He's living a thousand miles away. It was non-horrific. However, if you read it out of context and you translate it into German, it could take on subversive associations because the Habsburg Emperor held the title King of Jerusalem. Now, Nasi is a religious, not a political title. And anyway, you know, which non-Jew was ever going to read a Hebrew Haskoma to a Sefer? But unfortunately, that didn't last. The next link in the train was a Jew by the name of Jacob Toff, who, whilst in Eretz Israel, lent money to the struggling Ashkenazi Jewish Kehillah of uh, the Kehillah of Jerusalem, and he was provided by them with the names of various guarantors around Europe, including Rav Oppenheim. So Toff travels to these cities to collect on the loan, and he arrives in Prague in 1714. He meets Rav Oppenheim, who offers to pay three quarters of his debt, 800 thalers. But he wasn't prepared to pay any of Toff's claimed travel expenses, which was unacceptable to Toff, because he wanted to capitalize on his loan and make money off it. So he's not a happy bunny. And now we find the third link to this train, Giorgio Diodato. Diodato opened the first coffee house in Prague. And at his shop, students of the university, merchants, traders, and Jews could congregate and relax, and they could also read the collection of literature which was placed out on the tables. And this collection included a book called Foundations of Christianity, What Christians Do and Don't Believe, which was written by a Jesuit professor in Prague. Oddly enough, this book was printed in both Yiddish and German, and its author, a guy by the name of Hasselbauer, was a committed Christian missionary, as was Diodato himself, hence having the book lying around. Now, this Diodato and Toff, they join up to pursue Rav Oppenheim, even though they have very different motivations initially. Quite an unlikely duo. Yes. And in the run of events, they find out about these approbations, these Haskomas that Rav Oppenheim has written. And the case ends up with the magistrates of Prague. But there's an outbreak of a plague in the city, and Rovopenheim fled to Vienna for safety, which was the imperial capital of the entire empire. Toff pursues him there. And while there, Toff meets a doctor of holy scriptures called Louis Pisani, who is a former rabbi who had converted to Catholicism around 1703 in Venice for reasons which are unclear. And somehow, in the course of conversations, Toff now becomes convinced of the superiority of Christianity 
and the story just gets crazier and crazier. And Toph decides to become a Christian himself. It could be that he felt it was more likely that as a Christian, he stood more chance of winning his court case against a Jew, against Hoppenheim. So shortly after his return to Prague, Toph goes to his coffee house friend, the missionary Giorgio Diodato, who baptizes him on April the 13th, 1717, and christens him. There's a huge variety of different links to this tale. So if I I could just recap more for myself. So Rav Oppenheim used the title of Prince Nasi of Jerusalem. Toph the Jew has lent money to the Jerusalem killer, but he doesn't get enough money from Rav Oppenheim for his expenses and the loan. He meets a missionary who wants to pursue Rav Oppenheim anyway, and then he himself converts. Yes. And you're not making all of this up. No, this is all <laughs> documented. Yeah. And so now this Diodato and Toff, who are now, I guess, co-religionists, take up their suit against Oppenheim with vigor. There is a financial claim, and there's Oppenheim's illegal use of a royal title, the Prince of the Land of Israel. The first court case is resolved in favour of Oppenheim in July 1718. But they initiate a series of appeals and ultimately they are able to convince or prevail upon the emperor. And on 26th September 1718, Charles VI dispatches a commission to investigate a number of alleged crimes. Firstly, whether Rabbi Oppenheim was believed by the Jews to be king of Jerusalem by virtue of his own letters and those addressed to him in which this title appears. And secondly, whether the funds that were gathered throughout Bohemia for the Jews of Jerusalem and which were deposited with Oppenheim in his capacity as a Gabite stucker, whether that constituted proof of his standing as the Prince of Jerusalem. But more importantly, and more worryingly, was the question whether the exporting of monies out of Christendom to the Turkish Empire was a betrayal of the loyalty that the chief rabbi owed to his country and sovereign. And Rav Oppenheim's title is now criminalized by a religious charge that the use of this title implies that the true Messiah has not yet come, which was an attack against the basic beliefs of Christianity. So it's not just a political accusation anymore, but an accusation of heresy. And as an expert witness, this Professor Hasselbauer, and we will come back to him next week, was able to supply the imperial court with a list of books in which Oppenheim's title had been used both by the Jewish public and by the rabbi himself. So the commission rules in January of 1723 that although the financial compensation sought by Toff had no basis, the more serious charges were valid, and this was a a dangerous time for Oppenheim. And the monarch now issues two edicts. Firstly, that Rav Oppenheim's title was an affront to Christianity, 
and not only would he be forbidden to make further use of it, but any Hebrew books that bore his title needed to be recalled and censored for both this and at the same time any other potential violations within the book, which resulted in Rav Oppenheim not giving any more Haskomas, any appropriations for the next decade. But further, all future collections on behalf of the Jews of Eretz Yisrael became illegal in Bohemia because they enriched the coffers of the Ottoman Empire. No money could be sent to Eretz Yisrael and any such donations would be confiscated and a third of the funds would go to the person who had denounced them. And as far as Jewish books in Bohemia are concerned, the outcome was even more severe. The Dominicans are given sweeping powers over the printing and content of Jewish books for the remainder of that century, which prevented any shas from being printed there, and resulted in large-scale confiscations of Svarim. And therefore, what started as a trial over money ends as a battle for power and religious jurisdiction, especially over books, and it comes about through the efforts of an apostate Jew. Like so many other things in history. And what about the Semitian element that you mentioned before? So, interestingly, Rav Oppenheim's library contains works by Nathan of Gaza, who was the greatest supporter and the publicist of Shabtai Tzvi, works such as Sefer Bria and Tikkun Hayoim, both of which are housed in the Bodleian in Oxford to this day. And it's interesting because Rav Oppenheim was a vehement opponent of Shabtai Tzvi, as we see from letters he wrote, particularly to the Jews of Jerusalem in 1704, who were being infiltrated by suspiciously Sabbatean practices, and he went as far as to proclaim a ban against this group of people. But he has some of the Sabbatean works in his collection. And then there is a, an approbation that he wrote for two of the books of Nehemia Chiyun, who was a Sabbatean sympathizer who lived in Amsterdam, but he visited Prague in 1711. And Chiyun's leanings only came out in the watch subsequently. And even though Rav Oppenheim writes that in the approbation that he's only read one page of each book and is relying on that which he is being told, it is still uncomfortable for him. Wow. How does his library end up in Oxford? So, as many listeners are aware, the Bodleian Library in Oxford has an important collection of Jewish manuscripts, Jewish books, actually, especially of early printed works. But a significant portion of that, and most of the initial collection, came to Oxford when they purchased the entire library of Oppenheim. And Oxford in the early 19th century is a city with no Jews. What happens is that after the death of Oppenheim and of his son three years later, his daughter fell on hard times and tries to sell the collection. Now, one of her relatives 
acquires some of it in return for relieving her of some of the outstanding debt. But despite repeated inventories and new catalogues in Hebrew, in German, in Latin, the rest of the collection languishes in 28 sealed crates for decades. It was put up for sale in 1764, in 1826. Royalty were engaged in the quest for the purchase of the library, including, bizarrely enough, Catherine the Great of Russia. And at the time, there were 780 manuscripts and just over 4,000 books. And it was estimated to be worth, at the time, £22,000. I'm surprised that there was no appeal to the wealthy Jews of the world to acquire the collection. So there was, and in fact, there's an entire book written about the library of Oppenheim, and this takes up an entire chapter on why it didn't happen, especially in Germany, where it was located. Mm. But it doesn't find any buyers. And ultimately, the Bodleian Library, through the efforts of Reverend Dr. Alexander Nickel, acquire it in 1829 for the sum of around £2,000, which is uh, 10% of what it's valued at. And that's a sum which today any single volume of that collection would be worth. Having said that, this circumstance would ultimately prove fortunate because as a result, it escapes the burning of Hebrew books in Prague in 1714 and the outbreak of fire in 1754. And it escapes the fate of many mainland European libraries during the Holocaust. So we have it, even if it's not in... It's a blessing in hindsight. Yes. Yeah. Now, last words about Rav Oppenheim. He was buried in Prague's old Besakvaris. Now, people come back from Prague and typically they will, you know, show you photos of the Maharal's grave and the Kliokor and perhaps the Neude Behuda, but generally no one comes back and shows you a photo of Rob Oppenheim's grave. Now, the reason for this is that in recent years, almost since the time I started taking groups there, it is located in an inaccessible part of the Jewish cemetery. It's still fully extant, and it's next to actually two other abonim of note, but the access is roped off, and most people are unaware that it exists. So few people see or daven at the caver, which is uh, a great shame. I have, on occasion, managed to take small groups there, but I'm hoping that they will eventually give access to those wishing to pray there. So I'm looking forward on joining you on the next trip there. <laughs> and any of our listeners who want to join with. Thank you very much, Rabbi Hirsch. That's all we have time for today. Please join us for episode two out of four next week, where we'll be discussing the priests. And that took place in 1726. Thank you very much for listening. And as always, any feedback, any suggestions, please email podcasts at jle.org.uk. We'd like to hear from you all. And thank you very much, Rabbi Hirsch. Thank you.